We're going to be continuing in our exposition of John 14. We've been in it for a little while now. And in this text, in this chapter, Jesus has been comforting His disciples who were troubled because He was about to leave them to return to the Father, right? He's just moments away from the cross, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, all these things. Last Sunday, we looked at the sixth promise. There's a bunch of promises listed in John 14. We looked at the sixth one. After the ascension, that's Jesus going back up to the Father, Jesus promised to send His disciples and the church as a whole a helper, the paraclete, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit. And it will be the task of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to furnish to all Christians the instruction and consolation which would be given by the personal presence of Jesus. Obviously, He's leaving physically, and so He sends the Comforter in His stead. In the next section, Jesus issues a seventh promise, but not before reiterating what He said back in verse 15. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. It would appear that Jesus really wanted His disciples to know and understand that the promises that He's been presenting to them are only for those who love and obey Him, true believers. They are not for straight-up unbelievers, nor are they for fake Christians who claim to love Jesus but refuse to obey Him. We'll just do a summary. The promise of Jesus' spiritual presence in verse 1 is for true believers. The promise of a prepared place in verses 2 through 4 is for true believers. The promise of the right path, verses 5 through 11, is for true believers. The promise of forward progress in the gospel, verse 12, is for true believers. The promise of answered prayer, verses 13 through 14, is for true believers. And the promise of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, verses 16 through 20, is for true believers. Now, the same rule applies to the seventh promise and any other promise we dig up in this chapter. Now, many Christians believe they will have to wait to get to heaven to experience the presence of the Father and His joy forevermore. Psalm 1611. We're kind of holding out for that day. And yet, according to Jesus, we do not have to wait until heaven to experience His presence and joy. This is something that we look forward to in a way, but it's also something that we have before us today, something that we can enjoy and experience now. According to Jesus, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is not the only member of the Godhead who abides in true believers. Jesus tells His disciples that He and the Father will also abide in those who love and obey Him. Verse 23, true believers. This is the seventh promise. It is the promise of Trinitarian presence. This promise was prophesied in Ezekiel 37.27 where God declared, My dwelling place shall be with them, speaking of His people, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What we're looking at in the text here is precisely what God promised in 3727. Jesus is reiterating this ancient promise of the presence of God among His people. 
The Apostle Paul not only cited this prophecy in 2 Corinthians 6.16, but he spoke of it as being fulfilled. He spoke of it not as a future event, but as a present reality. He literally refers to true believers as what? The temple of the living God. Now let's begin to look at how Jesus presented the promise of Trinitarian presence to His disciples, those who were seated around the table with Him during the Last Supper, as well as all true believers of all time. In verses 21 through 24, that's what we shall be looking at. And we shall resume at verse 21a. John 14, verse 21a. Jesus continues by saying, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. <clears throat> Obviously, the first thing Jesus does here is he reiterates, as I already said, what he stated back in verse 15. And he does this here to establish a context for the seventh promise. Who is the seventh promise for? We've talked about this. Those who love Jesus and manifest love for Him through obedience to His commandments. True believers. It's like before He presents the seventh promise, He wants to remind His disciples who it's for. Those who love and obey Me. MacArthur said this, or wrote this, only those who love Jesus and obey His commandments enter into union with Christ. Their obedience is not the cause of their salvation, but rather the inevitable result of it. Obedience flowing from a heart transformed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit marks the one who truly loves Jesus Christ. Such obedient love is the outworking of the love the Holy Spirit pours into the redeemed heart at salvation. So firstly, Jesus wants to remind them the promise I'm going to present. This is who it's for, those who love and obey me. True believers, true believers. Now we can move to 21b. We just had to kind of get that part set up. And we'll get closer as we inch to the promise. 21b. Jesus continues by saying, And he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Just as the Father is said to love the Son because of His obedience to His commandments, you know, the laying down of His life for His sheep, etc., John 10, 14-17, so is He said to love the believer for the same reason. This is essentially what Jesus is saying. The Father was well pleased with His beloved incarnate Son, right? Matthew 3, 17, the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Father, the same Father, is, is well pleased with us when we honor and glorify His Son by obeying His commandments. Verse 23, right? Now we have to present something here because all of a sudden, if you've been tracking here with what's going on, it sounds a bit like works righteousness. Like, well, if I love and obey Jesus, then the Father will love me. Well, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. 
So we ask this question and answer it. Did Jesus' obedience to the Father's commandments cause the Father to love him? Was the, that the initial cause or the cause at all to actually cause the Father to love the Son? Absolutely not. Because then Jesus would be trying to earn his way with his own Father. And Jesus is God. Now, none of that makes sense. The Father's love for Jesus was not at all contingent upon whether or not Jesus obeyed. But I must add, it was an impossibility for Jesus not to obey. Because God does not disobey God. The Father's love for Jesus was not contingent upon whether or not he obeyed. But I will say that Jesus' obedience pleased the Father. And the second question we must ask, does our obedience to Jesus' commands cause the Father to love us? No. If that were the case, I'd be loved on Monday and hated on Tuesday. Because I'm all over the map. This, if this were true, this would be anti-gospel. This would be works righteousness, earning our way with God, if this were true. And yet I fear there are countless Christians in the church today who wonder if God loves them because they don't perform very well. Well, thank God it's not based on your performance, but upon the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. That's what it's based on. Not on ours, but on His. The truth is, we love and obey Jesus because God foreloved, predestined, and called us to do so. Romans 8, 29 through 30. We love and obey Jesus because God first loved us and made that love and obedience possible through the regenerating power and work of the Holy Spirit. We love Jesus and obey Jesus because God enabled us to do so. Because God loved us first, and eternity passed before He set the foundations of the earth. He predestined for us to love and obey Jesus, to walk in those works, Ephesians 1. Works of obedience. We must understand that Jesus, with His statement here, was not trying to confuse the order or trying to flip it and say, now you guys have to earn your way. That's not at all what he was doing. Back in verse 11, he talked about how the world cannot see or know the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. The world cannot know him. The world doesn't want to know him. Here in 21b, Jesus was warning his disciples against the worldly ideal that says that it's possible to fellowship with God and experience His love apart from loving Jesus and obeying His commandments. This is what He's guarding against. Because the world tells us, you can just earn your way with God. You don't need Jesus. Now, Jesus issued this same exact warning in, in, in many different ways during His ministry in John 5, 23. He said, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. In other words, if you don't love me, you don't love the Father. And you, if you don't love me... You're not loved by the Father because the Father loves me. He said it in Matthew 10, 33, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is another way of saying what he said here in our text. John 15, 23, just plainly Jesus says this, 
Whoever hates me hates my father also. So Jesus is establishing a fundamental truth. The fundamental truth that he is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. He is the only way to the father. If we love Jesus, we are loved by the father. If we do not, we are not. We cannot have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. It's a fundamental truth. Now, Jesus was not just seeking to protect His disciples against this line of thinking, which was prevalent in their day and is absolutely prevalent in our day. He was also seeking to comfort them. These disciples that are sitting around this table, they loved and obeyed Jesus. And He wanted them to know that, guess what? You are loved by the Father. You are loved by me. And I will continue to manifest myself to you. That means reveal. I will continue to reveal the totality, or I guess if we could even grasp that, but I will continue to reveal to you who I am and what I've actually done for you. Because they were confused at times, most of the time, until the day of Pentecost at least. A.W. Pink wrote, the manifestation of Christ is made only to the one who really loves Him. And the proof of love to Him is not by emotional displays, but by submission to His will. These guys were having an emotional display, were they not? We learned this a week or two ago. They were weeping and crying and, 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 and just tragic and, and sad and despondent over the fact that Jesus is leaving. And this is how they were showing Jesus, we love you, look, ah! And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to love me through, ah! I want you to love me through obeying me. You know, I think it's okay to shed a tear. But I usually do that when I realize my sin because I've grieved God. Pink continues, there is a vast difference between sentiment and practical reality. The Lord will give no direct or, and special revelation of Himself to those who are in the path of disobedience. Very interesting. Interesting point. Now we can move to 22. 22. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, John's like, hey, don't get crazy. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, and look at this question. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Here a disciple named Judas objects to what Jesus has been saying. Now, this was not Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. He's already out of the room. He's already gone off to the Sanhedrin or to the temple, wherever he went, to sell out Jesus. Or if not to sell out Jesus, to tell him where Jesus is going to be in a few hours. Just take special notice of John's parenthetical statement. Not Iscariot. So don't confuse them. Judas Iscariot's back in the room and now he's questioning Jesus? No, that dude's gone. This is a different disciple. This is a different Judas. This is Judas, the son of James. He is called Thaddeus in Matthew 10, 3, and I think Labaius somewhere else. Typically, we think of him as Thaddeus. But John, for whatever reason, wants to call him Judas. I've got one name. It's Phil. These guys back in these days, they could have like three or four names. It's really cool. When you get in trouble, you just switch names. 
right? I'm not Judas, I'm Thaddeus. Oh, I got to go find Judas. You look like him, I know. Judas had a problem with two things Jesus said. He took issue with two things that Jesus had said. The world will see me no more in verse 19. That's the one that really hung him up. And he had a problem with when Jesus said, I will manifest myself to those who love and obey me. That's my paraphrase of what he said in verse 21. He had a problem with that, that limited scope on whom Jesus is going to manifest himself to. He didn't like how narrow that is. In Judas's mind, these statements weren't congruent or didn't align with Jesus being the Savior of the world and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Judas's mind, he's thinking, how could Jesus, he says he's the Savior of the world, John the Baptist said that, how can he be the Savior of the world and the Lamb of God but only manifest himself to a certain group of people, like in particular us at this table? How can he be the Savior of the entire world and only manifest himself to a select few? This doesn't make sense to me. But actually what Judas objected to here is what people have been objecting to since the fall of man. The doctrine of limited atonement. The doctrine of particular redemption. This is what he's objecting to. The particular redemption. The fact that Jesus came to manifest himself to his people but not to every literal person. The fact that Jesus came to manifest Himself to His sheep, not to goats. No offense, goats. we got some goats people named goats in the back. <laughs> what did Jesus say back in chapter 10, verse 27 through 28? My sheep hear My voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. My sheep. That's a specific group. There's no way to turn my sheep into the entire world. It's an impossibility. What did Jesus say back in Mark 10, verse 45? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many, not all, many. Who are the many? The sheep. What did Jesus say up in John 17, 6? This is one of the most devastating, annihilating verses against universal atonement in Scripture. It just destroys it. And I can't figure out why guys are still preaching it today. It's doing damage. During his high priestly prayer, Jesus said this to his father. Listen to this. I have manifested, same language. I have manifested your name to whom? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they have done what? Kept your word. That is the death blow against the notion that Jesus came to die for every literal person. And unfortunately, he didn't do a very good job because a lot of them go to hell. 
Jesus manifests himself only to those whom the Father had given him. That's who he reveals himself to. And he had every person whom the Father had given him in mind here when he said this in John 17. He had in mind the entire elect, every true believer, every true disciple, not just the 11 who are walking with him to Gethsemane. Jesus manifests himself to this group of people and to no one else. Essentially, this is what he's saying in this text in John 14. I manifest myself to those who love and obey me. Those are the ones the Father gave me. That's who I reveal myself to. Thomas, not Iscariot, but you're kind of acting like Iscariot right now. And according to Revelation 7, 9, the elect are a vast multitude of people, too numerous to count. It's not this little frozen chosen. It's not, you know, me and this guy and that guy and the rest of you. I hope it happens. Well, maybe I do. I don't know. Now, why do people object to this teaching? Why did Judas object to Jesus' teaching on this? Clear teaching. Why do people do it? I think it's because they don't understand mercy. They do not understand how mercy works. They don't. I didn't understand how mercy works for a long time. And thanks to the Holy Spirit helping to illuminate me on that and some great authors who have written extensively on it, it clicked for me one day. But mercy still confounds me because I don't understand how anyone could get it at all. You see, in, in people's minds, if God saves one person, He is then obligated to save all people or at least offer salvation to all, that would be fair. But you see, this is not how mercy works. Mercy doesn't work that way. To say that mercy is obligated is to render mercy defeated and gone. Mercy is never obligated. It's never earned. It's never due. No one is entitled to God's mercy. No one deserves God's mercy. In fact, we all deserve God's justice because we've all sinned against Him and fall short of His glory. And yet, and yet, and yet, God, who is merciful, chose to extend mercy to some. Romans 9.15, I will give mercy to whom I will give mercy to. Citing that interaction with Moses. Now, if fairness is what we want, then we should get justice. Because justice would be the only fair response of a holy God to our sin and rebellion against Him. Right? That's what's fair. What's fair is to damn and punish and fry every sinner. That's what's fair because of what we've done to God and what we've done in His name, and what people continue to do in His name, even some who profess Christ. Justice, in my mind, would be the only fair response because of what we've done. We don't want 
Fairness. Trust me. We don't want fairness. Because then we're doomed. The reason why God chose, because some would say this is, you know, why would God choose to give it to only some? I mean, that just doesn't seem fair, right? I've had this objection, you know, said to me before. And Well, the reason why God chose to show mercy to some and not to all, because it was His will to do so. Ephesians 1.5. And who are we to question what God does or why He does it? Romans 9.20. To me, that is the epitome, the pinnacle, the height of prideful arrogance to question God on any matter. Well, the psalmist did it all the time. Well, guess what? They were wrong. Well, it's in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of people doing stupid stuff in the Bible. You know who does this? How many of you are parents? How many of you have children? At least one. You know who does this? Or let me say it this way. Don't self-entitled children question their parents' actions and motives? Isn't that what's driving that? It is spoiled, self-entitled children who are constantly questioning. They're not questioning about, why is the sky blue? That's an honest, childlike question. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you go here? Why did you go there? It's spoiled, self-entitled children who question their parents in this way. And are we not acting like spoiled, self-entitled children when we question our Heavenly Father on the matter of divine mercy? On why he's done what he's done. Why he does what he does. Yes, that's precisely what we're acting like. Do we like it when our children do that and question our motives and call our character into question these things? Are you kidding me? No, that's a one-way ticket to your room and possibly a belt on your rear end. Now, my kids are all older. They can turn the belt and swip me with it, so I don't get to be careful. i got to come with more direct force. Bazooka. Blow them right out of the hallway. <laughs> Blast him right into the neighbor's house. Here, you take care of him. Are we not acting like spoiled, self-entitled children when we question God's divine mercy? Are we not acting like rebellious children when we twist His word to make it mean what we want it to mean? To make it mean what makes us feel comfortable. And now we see justice and fairity in there because God has got to give it to everyone. Are we not being rebellious when we twist His word to mean such things? Universal atonement? Jesus came to manifest Himself to everyone? John 14 does not teach this. The Bible does not teach this. If this is an issue that you keep going around with, just, just, just submit yourself to the Scripture now and quit playing the game. Just stop. And rather than acting like spoiled, self-entitled children by questioning God and or tweaking His Word to suit our desires, us believers ought to be thankful that we have received mercy instead of justice. Why are we not thankful 
we should be, I mean, we should just rejoice that God chose us. We should be happier than kids at Disneyland. Parents are never happy. There goes all my money. But kids, it's like the greatest thing in the world. We should be so joy-filled and humbled by what God has done for us. And so thankful. But instead, well, that's just not fair. Why would they do that? Oh, you're a dang Calvinist. That's what this is. It's Calvinism. Oh, gosh. This is Jesusism. Long before Calvinism, there was Jesusism. There was Paulism. It's narrow. It's narrow. Rudolf Steyer wrote this. If Judas had known what the world is and what every human heart is by nature, instead of being puzzled at the Lord's withdrawal from the world, he would have wondered how Jesus could reveal himself to any man. <laughs> instead of asking why, say, how could you reveal yourself to anyone? We're terrible. Why did you just, instead of saying, why not give it to everyone, why did you give it to me? This baffles me to date that he chose before the foundation of the world to extend his mercy to me. I cannot get that, my mind around that. And, and, and the older I get and the more that I, I walk in the scripture and in the Bible, it, it just confounds me even more because I, I, God reveals to me how much more dreadful and sinful I actually am. And it just gets me to the point of just, I feel like I'm going to explode. Remember scanners? Ah, what is this that you've done for me? This is incredible. It is why the gospel is good news. It is why the gospel is good news. You know, people like Judas would be perfectly happy with Every living person being in the kingdom of God, whether they love Jesus or not, doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. God will have in the kingdom of Christ exactly who's to be in the kingdom of Christ. And it's by grace and His mercy and His love that we are there. Let's be a thankful people rather than a questioning and a dissatisfied group. We just don't think it's right. And the Lord responds to Judas's objection in 23. He responds, now he didn't do what I did with it. He did in other places. But here he gives a simple response. Jesus answered him. <laughs> Jesus, man. Jesus is just... I don't know why anyone bothers to question him because you look like an idiot afterwards. <laughs> You're just made to look stupid. There's 10 of them now elbowing each other going, what a dummy. You should have probably left with this scary. You'd be better off. Jesus answered him and says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What is that? That's a repeat. I'm just going to tell you what I already told you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. I like how Jesus broadens it out. He says, if anyone loves me, Look, 
any disciple, not just you guys at the table, any true believer, anyone whom my Father said is infection and mercy on an eternity past, anyone, all of them, not just you guys at the table. And literally in 23a here, Jesus repeats what he already said. My paraphrase, Judas, I already told you the answer. Came to manifest myself to those who love and obey me, to those whom the Father loves, not to the world as a whole. And then in 23b, he sets before Judas, not Iscariot and the other disciples, the seventh promise, the promise of Trinitarian presence. He says, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Some translations say abode. I like that. It's the abode of God. I just want you to stop and think about that for a moment. If you love and obey Jesus, if you love Jesus, if He's your Savior, and, and that love for Him is manifested by obedience to His commands. We're not talking about perfect obedience, but we're talking about a disposition of wanting to obey and attempts to obey and obedience and everything else. But we're not talking about, oh, I just go right down the line and nail it. As soon as you start saying that to yourself, you're in trouble. I'm talking about having a heart and attitude that wants to obey, and you are working to obey all the time. Even when you fail, you turn around, repent, and you're trying to obey. That's what I'm talking about. If you love him and you show that love through obedience, I want you to ponder this, that you have become the temple of the living God on earth because you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit in you. In you. Not just the paraclete. The whole Godhead abodes in you. In you. The fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. I walk with my people. And according to Jesus, not only do I walk with them, I am in them. This is a mind-bending, blowing truth. Are you familiar with the Greek term perichoresis? Have you ever heard of perichoresis? Anyone? Of course, Brandon has. Because next to me, he almost knows everything. He's right next to me, not quite there. He's almost at Phil. He's actually above Phil level. I found out yesterday while we were driving for a couple hours. That's why he had to get an Uber halfway through. Get out of the car now. Get out. I have guns. Get out of here. Get a dang Uber. I called him for you. They're already going to pick you up over here next to that cow. We're out in the country. Perichoresis. Sort of fascinating, fascinating Greek term. Combination of words. It basically means rotation. And theologians use it when describing several things. For instance, the two natures of Christ in perfect union within the same person, right? Fully man, fully God in one person. What? Perichoruses. The omnipresence of God as He intersects with all creation. Perichoruses. The mutual interpenetration or reciprocity of the three persons of the Godhead. You know, God is one, but in three, they're all 
eternal and the same, but yet different? Perichoresis? Fourth, the fellowship of the three co-equal persons of the Trinity as they are perfectly embraced in love and harmony and expressing an intimacy in this relationship that no one can humanly comprehend. Perichoruses. One gall, one gal, gall. She had some gall by saying this. No, she didn't. She was actually right on point. One gal said perichoruses is so unique and mysterious, it has to be divine in origin. In other words, it's not something us humans are familiar with. It's not something that is associated with a fallen world. And I will say this. The seventh promise, I think in my opinion, which probably doesn't amount to much, but in my opinion, the seventh promise may very well be the greatest promise of all the promises in John 14. I want you to think about it. The Trinitarian presence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in true believers. And because of this, we experience the intimate fellowship, love, and harmony of the Trinity. We taste this divine perichoruses. Wow. Wow. How else can the peace of Christ be transcendental or transcending? How else can the love of God be so permanent and so perfect? How else can the grace of God be an undrainable ocean? Perichoruses. Perichoruses. Mm. We taste it. We taste it. We taste and see that the Lord is good. Perichoruses. Mm. Incredible. Let's move to verse 24, our last verse. If you're wondering why my voice is like this, it's because I'm still sick. <laughs> I'm not trying to pull an R.C. Sproul or a, a Mel Gibson this week. I don't even know why Mel Gibson came into my mind right there. That's fair now, man. <laughs> Verse 24. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now this incredible section ends with what appears to be a kind of litmus test the disciples can use to evaluate, <clears throat> study the people they will be ministering to after Jesus is gone from Pentecost forward. A lot of people will be coming into the church. I mean, Solomon's portico had thousands and thousands of people in and out of it and coming and going. And some are going to be legit. Barnabas, Stephen, Philip the Evangelist, etc., and so on. There's a lot. And some won't. Ananias, Sapphira, Simon the Magician, and so on. And the surefire way to know if a person is a true believer is love for Jesus, manifested through obedience 
to His words, to His commandments. If they love Him, they will keep His words. Disciples, this is what you watch for. If they don't, they won't. If they don't love me, they're not going to obey. They're not going to obey what you teach them about me. Remember, remember, obedience is the hallmark of genuine saving faith and love for God. Remember that. That's from MacArthur. That's a great quote. Obedience is the hallmark. And I tell you, I think we should use this litmus test on ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. I say I love Jesus, but is this love that I say that I have for Him, is it being manifested through obedience to what He has called me to do? This is a great thing that we are to do. The Apostle Paul, Dan taught it months ago, the Apostle Paul commended believers to test themselves regularly. Well, why would we need to do that? We've been chosen. Well, let's make sure that you're elect. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Make sure that you're in Christ. Because guess what? There's going to be days where you wonder because of your behavior. You do what you ought not to do. You realize, I've been doing things I, I don't even really want to do. That's not who I am. Test yourselves. Love through obedience. We would all say, well, we just love Jesus. But do we obey Him? But do we obey Him? So we should use this litmus test that He issues here on ourselves. We should use it to test others, to make sure they are in the faith, right? We should use it to evaluate other professing believers when we notice habitual disobedience in their lives. And if you spend any time with another saint, you're going to see stuff. You may not see just as crazy ongoing, but you'll see little things and you can encourage when you can. But sometimes you'll meet one and you'll just say, well, wow, they just keep doing this stuff over and over and over and it's so destructive and terrible and sinful and harmful. And What are they doing? We should use this same litmus. You say you love Jesus, but you're not obeying Him. And I'll tell you, evaluation is not an acceptable practice in today's politically correct culture, is it? I've had believers tell me, when I give an evaluation, an estimation of what I've seen, and I try to do it loving, but sometimes my voice is like this, and I'm just straightforward, and they're like, he hates me. No, I don't. I'm just straightforward. But I've had people tell me when... I evaluate and, and I wonder, well, they love Jesus, but where's the obedience? I see a lot of disobedience. I've had them say things to me like this, you're judging me. This is one of the most popular things to say to people today. You say one thing about them, you're judging me. And that is the cardinal sin. Well, let's just make something clear. If, if, if I evaluate and, and try to exhort you in a certain way. I just want you to know that if I was judging you, I'd be saying you're going to hell. There's a difference. That's judgment. How many of you have had people say this to you? You, you lovingly call them out and say, I'm very concerned about you, and then all of a sudden you're judging me. You know what you can say to them? If I was judging you, I'd be telling you you're going to hell. I'm not telling you you're going to hell. I'd be telling you you're going to hell rather than exhorting you to see your error, confess it, and get right with the Lord. See, evaluation 
is a good thing as long as we are motivated by love and a strong, 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 singular desire to see people reconciled unto the Lord and unto His bride because our sin impacts the church. It hurts the church. This is a a horrible illustration, but how much of an impact is it going to have if I decide to go out and have an affair? What is going to happen here? Cameron's like, I guess I'm the pastor now. (laughs) Well, you still got to get voted on by the board. And I'll tell you what, you're going to have to run for it. There's going to be a campaign between Bruce and Cameron. You're going to have a guy stand up here saying, hey, brothers and sisters, this is why I should be it. And Cameron's going to be like, no. You know how Cameron is. He's just sneaky. I'm making a joke of a serious subject, but what would happen if, if I failed morally? That would not only devastate my natural family. It would devastate this church. But I'm confident that this church would continue on because it ain't about Phil. Our sin impacts others. It doesn't just impact the Lord. It doesn't just grieve the Spirit. And be bold enough to call out your brothers and sisters at the appointed time in love and truth. And if they throw, you're judging me, at you, remind them that you're not trying to cast them into hell, but to see them walk in the light. The fact is, if we are new creations, we will love Jesus and we will obey. Not perfectly, but we will obey. We will obey. Lastly, Jesus bases everything He said about love and obedience in this text and the promise of Trinitarian presence, not upon His authority, which He totally has, but upon the Father's authority, doesn't He? Verse 24b, He basically tells Judas, what you're hearing from Me is not Mine, but the Father's who sent Me, My Father's words. There's Jesus telling Judas, I love the Father and I obey Him. And here's an example of my love through obedience. I say what He's told me to say. And here's the bottom line. When people reject Jesus and or His teaching, and I don't care if you're a believer and you reject His teaching on how He manifests Himself to only some particular redemption. I don't care what doctrine or truth it is. I don't care if you reject Him as a whole because you're just an unbeliever. Whatever. But the fact of the matter is, when you reject Jesus and or His teaching, you are rejecting the Father. There is no way to be connected to the Father without the divine link, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, Judas, these are not my words. They are the words of the Father. Think very carefully about what you're saying. 
Now, we're not exactly sure how Judas responded to Jesus' correction, but I'm pretty certain that once the Spirit of Truth, right, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit came and made things clear to him, I'm pretty sure he became a good Calvinist. My wife's going, I'm writing it down, I don't know why. I'm pretty sure he believed what the Bible teaches about such matters. I'm pretty sure he believed in the doctrines of grace. Closing. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> the Trinitarian presence Jesus promised is no temporary thing. It is the privilege of true believers to enjoy this inner presence of God continually. Fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is ours forever. Forever. Now, we experience it spiritually by faith. And yet, in the future, we will experience it physically when our faith is made sight. And yet, there is something we need to be mindful of. Disobedience can and will frustrate the fellowship we enjoy with this Godhead. It will. One of the first things sin causes is doubt. We begin to doubt whether God loves us. We begin to doubt whether or not God actually accepts us. We begin to doubt whether or not He is actually with us or and or in us, right? Sin causes doubt, and doubt leads to a doubt of all these great, wonderful things that God has done for us. Sin makes us feel alienated. In fact, sin does alienate. This is why the world is separated from God. But it does make even the believer who engages in habitual sin and even unconfessed sin. It doesn't have to be just one thing over and over, but whenever I sin, I feel a sense of alienation. But it does. Every believer will feel this sense of alienation when they sin. They will feel, if they keep sinning, they will feel abandoned. They will feel alone. God has left. But sin does not cause God to dislike, reject, or leave us. It doesn't. Oh, great, let's just sin like crazy. Why? So you can feel as if He's not there and doesn't love you and everything forever and ever and ever? Wow, you're going to be a joyful Christian, aren't you? More like baptizing prune juice. No, sin simply twists and manipulates our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It, it twists and manipulates our perception of who God is and what He's done and accomplished for us and what He's doing. It desensitizes us to His presence 
and to His holiness. It causes spiritual blindness that can render us incapable of seeing and savoring the beauty of God, which is all around us and even in us. And this, beloved, is why we must keep short accounts and confess our sins daily and even moment by moment. This is why we must practice repentance, the turning away from sin toward righteousness. Our fellowship is on the line at least our perception of it. Our sense of God's love, our sense of God's acceptance, our sense of God's triune presence in our lives is on the line. Our peace is on the line. And we mustn't forget That sin kills. The wage of sin is death. Romans 6.23. It kills us. In fact, the reason why you will physically die someday is because of that. But if you're in Christ, you're really not going to die. You're just going to pass into His glorious presence. If you're not, you're going to die a thousand deaths. You will never die, and yet you will eternally feel as if you are dying, tormented. We mustn't forget that sin kills, nor should we forget that Christ our Lord is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we will confess our sins to Him. 1 John 1, 9. Yes, we must be sober-minded, sin kills. But we must, must remember who killed sin for us. And we must bring our sins before Him regularly and confess them, confess our weaknesses. If you're a, a true believer but have somehow gotten off track, bring your sins before Jesus, and He will, as the Scripture promises, as He promised, He will cleanse you. He will purify you based on the blood that He shed 2,000 years ago. He will cleanse you. He will restore the fellowship that you once enjoyed. He will. Remember that. And yet if you're not a believer, but you suddenly desire to have your sins forgiven and you want this Trinitarian presence in you, you want what we've been talking about, call upon God for mercy. He doesn't have to give it to you, but He can. Confess your sins to Him. Ask Him to cause you. Ask Him politely. Please, please, Father, please, God. Cause me to be born again through the Holy Spirit. Ask Him politely. Please, please grant to me the gifts 
of faith and repentance. And turn from your unbelief and trust that the Lord Jesus lived for your righteousness, died for your sins, was buried to settle your account, rose from the grave victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. Believe that. Believe in the person and work of Jesus, and ye shall be saved. And love Jesus and, and manifest your love for Him through obedience to His commandments, obedience to His words. You will, you will, I promise, you will know. You will know the paraclete. You will know the helper. You will know the Holy Spirit is in you. You will know that the Father and the Son love you and that they are also in you. You will know. You will know. You will know. And you will never, ever be the same.